Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. Go now to my place that was at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of all our hypocrisy. Show us our hypocrisy. Expose our hearts by your living word and grant us repentance, Amending our ways, turning from our sins, clinging to your grace and mercy. Father, may we not so distort the gospel that we treat it as a refuge. 
to sin instead of for sin. Bless now the preaching of your word to the glorifying of your name in your church. In Christ's name, amen. A new section begins here, runs into chapter 8 and verse 3. It's the first extended piece of prose that we've come to so far in our study of Jeremiah. Jeremiah being dominated by poetry up to this point. This section picks up on a theme that was introduced in chapter 6 and verse 20. That of Judah's unacceptable, displeasing worship. Their God told her, What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Judah thought she could play multiple choice with the law. She thought she could keep the ceremonial aspects and pay no regard to the moral aspects. She thought that by keeping one part of the law, she would be free to disobey another part of the law. Essentially, she thought she could buy God off. She thought she could curl up in the Father's lap and say, yeah, that was ugly what I did, but isn't this cute? In a word, this chapter, this section, is about her hypocrisy, her hypocritical worship. She worships the true God with a false heart, thinking that that makes it okay for her to worship false gods with a true heart. To borrow an image from Thomas Brooke, her worship is painted. There's no life. The worship's on display, but it isn't alive. It isn't living. It's two-dimensional. It's flat. It's dead. It's like painted fire. There is no light. There is no heat. There's no light in the mind. There's no heat in the heart. It is not living. Samuel Rutherford once wrote, You may paint a man, you may paint a rose, you may paint a fire burning, but you cannot paint a soul or the smell of a rose or the heat of a fire. Judah's worship is all paint and no reality. It is all paint and no soul, all paint and no aroma, all paint and no heat. And because of this show of worship, her ways are wicked and her hopes are false. That's the theme we'll see developed. Her worship is hypocritical, and from that, her ways are wicked, and therefore, her hopes are false. Judah is walking down the wrong road, but she's doing so with confidence and held, held, head held high. She is on the highway to hell, humming, it is well with my soul. But whenever you're going the wrong way, listening to the right tunes doesn't change the destination. Judah 
saunters into God's presence, as it were, expecting the welcome of a father, but she is certain to find the condemnation of a judge. The judge. And this is precisely the dire condition of much of the American church. The evangelical church. Her worship is hypocritical. Her ways are wicked. And her hopes are false. As we get into the text, we have a word that comes to Jeremiah from Yahweh, verse 1. It's a word about a word. A word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. And this word says, stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word. So he receives a word about a word. There's a word that comes to Jeremiah about a word that's to go to Judah. Whenever Jeremiah speaks, he's to make it plain that Yahweh is speaking. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah. Whenever you see things like this, don't let the to distract you from the from. It's to Jeremiah, but it's from Yahweh. And so whenever you're reading portions of this book or any book, and, and you think things like, that sounds like Jeremiah, or that sounds like Paul, don't let the who the word was to distract you from who the word is from. Because there are men with lots of initials by their names that will use instances like this transition from poetry to prose to make you think, did Jeremiah write this section or did Jeremiah write that section? They get obsessed with the to and they forget the from. And whenever they do, it's not the authorship of any human author that they're really wanting to call into question, but the authorship of God. Remember that whenever God wanted to write this book, He crafted the pen so that the slant would harmonize with the message. We were told at the beginning in chapter 1 and verse 4 that God formed Jeremiah in the womb and He consecrated him before he was born. Warfield captures beautifully what happens in this. As light that passes through the colored glass of a cathedral window, we are told, is light from heaven but is stained by the tints of the glass through which it passes. So any word of God which has passed through the mind and soul of a man must come out discolored by the personality through which it is given. And just to that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. But what if this personality has itself been formed by God into precisely the personality it is for the express purpose of communicating to the word given through it, just that coloring which it gives. What if the colors of the stained glass window have been designed by the architect for the express purpose of giving to the light that floods the cathedral precisely the tone and quality it receives from them? What if the word of God that comes to his people <clears throat> is framed by God into the word it is precisely by means of the qualities of the men formed by Him for the purpose through which it is given. 
When we think of God the Lord giving by His Spirit a body of authoritative scriptures to His people, we must remember that He is the God of providence and of grace as well as of revelation and inspiration. And that He holds all the lines of preparation as fully under His direction as He does the specific operation which we call technically in the narrow sense by the name inspiration. Don't let the two distract you from the from. This is the word of the living God. And Jeremiah is to proclaim this particular message in a particular place. Stand in the gates of Yahweh's house and proclaim this word. He's to proclaim the word of Yahweh in the house of Yahweh. And he's particularly to proclaim it to the people of Yahweh. Say this to the men of Judah who are coming to worship. The men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Seems highly likely that this was preached on a feast day. Whenever multitudes would have been coming to the temple. And so Jeremiah is not simply telling them that their worship is repulsive. He's telling them on Easter as it were. They've gotten all dressed up and cleaned up and he tells them you look ridiculous. And you're filthy. So the place you see that Jeremiah is to proclaim this message. Isn't just a matter of convenience or audience. It's integral to the message itself that's being given. And at the heart of this word. Are two commands. Really it's a, it's a single idea presented both negatively and positively. One, they are to amend their ways, verse 3. And they are to not to trust in deceptive words. And those two commands serve to outline our text. Verses 3 through 7, we have the two commands. But really, the focus in this first part of the text is on the promise for obedience to those commands. In verses 8 through 11, Judah's obedience to these commands is unfolded. And finally, in verses 12 through 15, we see the consequences or the promise given concerning their disobedience. And in all of this, there's this contrast between two sources of security and confidence. Will they trust in Yahweh's words and do as He says and obey them, or will they trust in these deceptive words? Upon what will they base their peace? Will they seek assurance concerning staying in the land in obedience to Yahweh's word? Or will they trust in these deceptive words? Now, these commands, again, are two sides, as it were, of the same coin. First, they're told to amend their ways. This would mean to repent, to return to Yahweh. Up to this point in Jeremiah, the clearest statement we have as to what this involves comes in chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 through 4. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. 
For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So if they amend their ways, if they return to Yahweh, they will, the promise is, stay in this land. He will let them dwell in this place, verse 3. That's the promise that's going to be expounded on. But first, the negative side, negatively, they are not to trust in deceptive words, verse 4. We've been told about the lies and deception of the false prophets several times in this letter so far. For instance, chapter 5 and verse 10, we read that they have spoken falsely of Yahweh and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And in this way, we're told in chapter 6 and verse 14, they heal the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. But now, we get some indication in, in how they tried to ground or reason that He would not destroy them, that there would be peace. What are the false words by which they deceive the people? The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. I believe there's both a sentimental and mystical aspect of how they're trying to manipulate the people with these words. There's both a, an emotional point and a superstitious point involved here. They look at the temple and they simply feel. Now, this is the temple of the Lord. It's so meaningful. It's so significant. It simply cannot be destroyed. They likely recall the hard times in their history, dark times in their past, times that, that Israel was sinful and, and in disobedience, and yet their enemies fell. Oh, there could have been some suffering and some consequences, but the temple is still there. They are still there. It cannot be destroyed. But I think more than this, there's a kind of mystical bent to this deceptive proclamation. The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. They treat the house of Yahweh as, it's a, as if it's some magical talisman that they can wield and protect themselves from threat. They've got God trapped in a box. They're safe. What can happen to the city? These words are deceptive. They're equivalent of what Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4 as plausible arguments. They sound good if all you do is listen to them. But you must only listen. Don't think about them. Just listen and they sound good. This is why Paul and Romans 16, 18 refers to the flattery and smooth talk that deceive the naive. If you don't think, boy, it sounds good. If you're unaware of these kind of tactics, you must not watch the evening news often. 
So watch it, and then flip the channel to TBN, or catch some radio preacher, and you will see the very same methods employed. It all sounds good if all you do is listen. Feel, don't reason. Experience, don't think. It's all mystical. It's all superstitious. It isn't biblical. It's not even logical. It's emotional. It's superstitious. And the reason they're told not to trust in these deceptive words is because for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds. Now notice the argument before we get into it. Do not trust in deceptive words because if you amend your ways. You see how the two commands are connected now. Amend your ways. Don't trust in deceptive words. Don't trust in deceptive words because if you amend your ways. If they amend their ways, it means they are not trusting in deceptive words. And if they trust in deceptive words, it means they will not amend their ways. What you believe determines how you live. Theology is practical. It is lived out. If you believe wrong, you live wrong. And so can you not see the truth of A.W. Tozer's quip that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us? If they truly amend their ways and truly execute judgment, if their obedience isn't done as Jeremiah spoke of it in chapter 3 and verse 10 with pretense, but rather with their whole heart, if if they don't oppress the orphan or the widow, if they don't shed innocent blood, if they don't go after God's, then, then God will let them dwell in this land that He promised to Abraham forever. What God is calling them to in this is covenant faithfulness. And what He's promising is covenant blessing. This does not mean that covenant faithfulness merits blessing unless we're talking about the covenant faithfulness of our Lord. But in our case, covenant faithfulness is still required. True covenant faithfulness demonstrates new covenant relationship. That new covenant relationship spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31 where he writes the law on our hearts. Or in chapter 32, where he puts the fear of God in our hearts so that we don't turn from his ways. Here's the way 1 John unfolds this, chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we, know, we may know that we are in him. You notice he said, but not by this we get into him. By this we know we are in him. Being in him results in these things. These things don't result into being in Him. 
By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now in that instance, the thrust was Godward. But it also relates in this manward aspect, just as there are those two aspects being called for in these commands. John goes on to say, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling. Whenever such covenant faithfulness is lacking, John then goes on to explain it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. So covenant faithfulness is necessary to blessing, but it is not meritorious of that blessing. It's a result of the goodness and grace of our God. That's how you make sense of a command like Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our faithfulness does not cause the new covenant. The new covenant causes our faithfulness. But Judah displays no such covenant fidelity, verse 8. They trust in deceptive words. Now in verses 8 through 11, we'll see the folly of that trust. And then in verses 12 through 15, the futility of that trust, that it's of no avail. She trusts in these deceptive words as evident by a recipe made up of three ingredients. First, she violates virtually every command. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And you couple this together with those things that are clearly not being done in verses 5 through 6. They're not executing justice. They are oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. They are shedding innocent blood. They are going after other gods. You put all this together, there is virtually no commandment that they are not violating. When you think of the Ten Commandments, the only one you might say is not explicitly mentioned here is the Sabbath. But they certainly weren't making it holy. But even so, remembering the Sabbath is exactly the kind of command we'll see that they would have been keen on observing. Because they thought if they did that, they could ignore the other nine. Her hypocrisy in this, you see, is rooted in uh, heresy. Her false hopes make her comfortable with her false life. And second, having rolled in the mud, she saunters into the presence of the holy God of heaven. Will you... Will you do these things and then come and stand, verse 10, before me in this house which is called by my name? Remember in chapter 6 where Yahweh speaks of those false prophets healing the wounds of His people, lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He goes on to say this. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Or as he put it in chapter 3, they had the forehead of a whore. They refused to be ashamed. Third, she has not only the audacity to come before Yahweh in this state, but also to declare, because she's done so, 
We are delivered. But on what does she base this? Those deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. She does all this, verse 10, only so that she may continue in her abominations. And so Yahweh asks, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Now, whenever Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 1, we think we know all that he's speaking about because he's turned over the tables of the money changers and is ripping people off. We think we, we gather everything that this is about. But the den of robbers wouldn't be a place where robbery takes place. It would be a place where refuge is sought after having robbed. Jesus, uh, uh, what Jeremiah is getting at here is, you've made my house a cave where robbers go after one heist to plan and lay low so that they can pull off the next. You're making my house a refuge from your sin to sin. You're not seeking refuge here because of your sin. That's what this house is about. It is for sinners. It is all about communicating your need of grace. But you're not coming here because of your sin, seeking refuge because of it. You're seeking refuge here to sin. You're seeking refuge here unto sin. And God explains, I see it. You've fooled no one. You're not hidden. They haven't hid their sin. They're rubbing it in His face, as it were. Such deceptive words abound in the church today. So many declare, we are delivered only to return to their abominations again and again, but now with a clear conscience. It's okay. We're delivered. The tree bears no fruit, but it's declared good and thus immune from the fire. Some think they're good because of who planted the tree. Others think they're good because of where the tree was planted. Others because how the tree was planted. It does not matter who. It matters not the preacher. Even if he be the apostle Paul, he cannot save you. It matters not where. It doesn't matter the church, how sound, how orthodox, how great her history of faithfulness how present God has been amongst those people, the church itself cannot save you. It matters not how. It matters not what prayer you prayed. No, no matter how true the words of it were, if your heart were not true, the prayer itself cannot save you. Many think they are 
delivered for such sentimental deceptive words or mystical deceptive words. They say to themselves, Falls Creek, Falls Creek, Falls Creek. Or Baptist Church, Baptist Church, Baptist Church. Or baptism, baptism, baptism. By immersion, immersion, immersion. Or sinner's prayer, sinner's prayer, sinner's prayer. And do not think you are delivered for true words. Deceptive trust in truth is as deadly as trusting in deceptive lies. Do not say to yourself, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. As one pastor put it, doctrine without life is like spelling everything right on the tombstone. Trusting in truth about Christ is not the same as trusting in the true Christ in whom alone there is salvation. Trusting in Christ Himself and Him alone is saving. We could technically translate many instances where we are told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to this way. Faith into Christ. That's the command. Faith, believe into into Christ. Thrust yourself in trust and abandonment on Him. The truth about Him. Believing, you're believing the truth about Him. Your work of believing truth about Jesus doesn't save. The demons also believe and tremble. False doctrine can damn you, but belief in true doctrine cannot save you. It can only point you to the true Christ in whom there is salvation. Because of these kinds of deceptive words, many houses called by the name of Christ are nothing more than dens of robbers. They're not assemblies of the saints seeking refuge from their sins to then in the strength of His grace live lives of holiness Not perfect by any means, but lives of holiness empowered by that grace for His glory. Instead, they are assemblies of the wicked. Where they come from their wickedness to leave unto their wickedness with a clear conscience. Believing they're delivered because of what they've done. But God sees such hypocrisy. And none of the talismans of evangelicalism stay His mighty hand of judgment. And so He calls for His people to go to Shiloh where He first made His name to dwell, verse 12. We see the tabernacle erected at Shiloh as early as Joshua. Whenever the the remaining tribes had not yet received an inheritance were to receive their allotment. We read in Jeremiah 18, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. It remains there through the time of Judges, and it's in the time of that last judge, Samuel, as we transition to the kings, that we see things fall apart concerning Shiloh. And it begins 
whenever Israel was defeated by the Philistines so that some 4,000 men fell dead. And rather than humble themselves before Yahweh, this is how they respond. Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They realize God has wielded the Philistines against them. And they think because they got a box, they can wield God against the Philistines. The Ark is captured by the Philistines. The Philistines find out that they cannot harness God either. But the ark never returns to Shiloh. And so what's involved here is unfolded by the psalmist. We don't get any historical insight as to the destruction of Shiloh. But we do get this commentary in Psalm 78. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. And having forsaken Shiloh, Shiloh proved no refuge for Israel. It was not because of the tabernacle that she ever found safety, and it was because of her evil that she was destroyed. And now, because of all of Judah's abominations, verse 13, because she has not listened to the persistent voice of Yahweh, because she has not given any heed to his calls for repentance. Therefore, he will do to this house, to this place, as he did to Shiloh. Therefore, verse 15, he will cast them out of his sight as he cast Israel out of his sight. This house will prove no refuge as Yahweh forsakes it, and forsaking it has forsaken his people. This sentimental, mystical trust proves to be of no avail. All their trust is to be destroyed and burned. Everything in which they trust, consumed, broken, overturned. Where is your trust? Is it in anything that can be burned, consumed? Because if it can, it will be. And you along with it. Repent and trust in the crucified and risen Christ and you will be saved. But everything else in which you might trust is something that is void of repentance and empty of Christ and thus it cannot deliver. All other trusts like Judas here are full of sin and empty of deliverance. There are deceptive words of no avail. Like Rome of old, evangelical American temples have grown extravagant, luxurious, But God sees the trust and deceptive words so that His people come from their wickedness only to leave unto their wickedness, but with their 
conscience assured that they will be delivered, feeling peace when there is no peace. Church may be on the sign, but that's as far as it goes. Many are dens of robbers, and over them God has written Ichabod. No glory, forsaken. Saints, do not doubt this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Because He is her founder and perfecter. He is her refuge and He will never be toppled or assailed. But know this. If you see the name church on the sign, but inside it is full of deceptive words and lies... And it is full of wickedness. Don't believe you're safe. Just because you're inside that place called church. There is one refuge for sinners. Christ. And Christ alone. Flee to Him. Trust in Him. He lived to be the righteousness of those who trust in Him and died to bear away the wrath for their sins. He is mighty to save. There is no lack in Him. Your trust in Him is not deceptive. He will hold. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great mercy and grace in Jesus Christ to great sinners such as we. Have mercy on us afresh and anew. Sanctify us by your word. Keep us from drifting from your truth and into wickedness. May we live heralding the truth of Jesus Christ. May sinners find refuge in Him. Father, purify your church. May your gospel sound forth. In the strong name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.